Welcome to the second ever episode of Destination Unknown, a podcast to bridge the gap between what we are all told about future careers and what that life is really like, one story at a time. My name is Lorna Greville. For the better part of a decade, my career has been in higher education. I've spent most of that time thinking about what matters to people planning their future, what motivates them, what influences them, and what they want their lives to look like in 10 or 20 years. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you to episode two of Destination Unknown. Episode one has already seen listeners from Australia, the USA, Thailand, Germany, and of course here in the UK too. I would never have expected this to go global. Whether you're a new listener or returning, welcome. It's wonderful to have you here. Our guest for episode two is a friend of mine, Sam Ryder. Sam is head of operations at ASM Global and the Hull Arena. Sam is among the most intelligent, hardworking and humble people I know. His career has been forged through a singular passion for, in his words, rock and roll. We spoke during a time that Sam was on a pretty long-term furlough. In his role as head of operations, his work sees him manage and oversee mostly very large music events, which of course were completely stopped during UK lockdowns. We don't dwell on the pandemic, but focus on what got him into a career that sees him rub shoulders with some of the greats including, but not limited to, Arcade Fire and the Cheeky Girls. Yes, I'm going to include the Cheeky Girls as one of the greats. Don't at me. Sam's serenity and calm manner belies a work ethic that is astounding. But we talk about that too, that work ethic, the challenges of creating and maintaining a work-life balance in an industry that is notorious for long days and late nights. Of course, now UK lockdowns have been lifted, and I do have an update to share with you at the end. For now, though, join me on this second journey into Destination Unknown. Okay. I can hear you and stuff. Perfect. Lovely. Um, I actually, I, the sound quality is not the best thing in the hotel world, but it is surprisingly good in like the phone microphones the things i've done so far so um yeah cool. i yeah it like you can you can spend five thousand pounds on a microphone and it might not be that much better than a 50 pound microphone it might be that much better than a phone microphone it's just how much you want to it's how long to pick a string true if i was doing a podcast about music for you know audio files it would be a different story <laughs> yeah <laughs> um anyway let's begin so thank you so cool. much for joining us on destination unknown um let's begin by yeah who are you um so my name is sam Ryder, uh and i am the head of operations at the bonus arena in hull which is a three and a half thousand capacity multi-function venue space that has everything from conferences and exhibitions and career shows all the way up to um, headline gigs from Stereophonics, Spring of the Horizon, uh, Noel Gallagher, and so on and so forth. Amazing. Amazing. And I've known you for a very long time. Um, and uh, you're... Oh, eight years? Seven years? I think it's almost a decade. Yeah, it's eight, eight years since uh, me and my wife's first date. Um, so it must be just just under eight years. Mad. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy, crazy. Time flies. Um, and also, obviously, like, should we talk about um, your education? So 
working in music and being head of operations at a huge arena if you look back to your qualifications is that kind of where you started or where you thought you'd be so, so I, I've I'm not sure how good this is for an education podcast <laughs> but I sort of I sort of fell into to what I'm doing but I fell in as a result of who I'd surrounded myself with at uni so I um, initially uh, went to college and did A-levels in music, performing arts uh, and philosophy, weirdly, um, and then went on and did a degree at Leeds Uni um, in music and philosophy. Um, so half of that was me just reading books and doing philosophy stuff, and then the other half I specialised in the music technology and studio production side of music because I wasn't a good enough piano player to play for universities um, and then I got a job working behind a bar uh, at the students union whilst I was there and gained an interest in the live element of uh, technical production and that kind of thing just because they were the same type of cables that I was plugging in the studio but on a stage um, and eventually I started volunteering to push flight cases for them at the end of shows and ended up getting a job as a technician there, became the technical manager at the Students' Union for a few years, and it all just sort of ballooned from there really into festival management, working at the arena, working for ASM Global, who are the company I work for now. Amazing. So... I guess music was kind of a really good start point that took you off on the journey via university. Yeah, so music's always been sort of music and Barnsley Football Club are my two kind of main passions in life. And um, and yeah, from from a young age, I've enjoyed going to see, I loved going to concerts. I went to see, I think first gig was um, Meatloaf. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was awesome. Uh, meatloaf at Sheffield Arena, followed by the Beautiful South about a week later, um, who were incredible. Um, and ever since then, I got the bug for seeing concerts and gigs and all through college, uni, if I had a spare tenner, if I had a spare 20 quid, I would go and see a show, whatever it was, be it at like Manchester Arena, because Leeds Arena wasn't built then, or, um, or the Brudenell Social Club or um the Hyde Park pub, the uni, wherever, just absorb as much live music as I could and um and drink a fair bit whilst I was doing it as well. Naturally. Naturally, <laughs> Naturally yeah. We went to see more Steph together, didn't we? We did, yeah. It was weird. Really very, weird. Very really hard. weird show. <laughs> very hard. He um so we get a, a show rider before a gig of what the artist wants and he requested if I recall correctly um, 20 white and 20 red roses for the stage which he then um, proceeded to hand the petals out to women in the front few rows and when he came on stage and that was literally the only reason he wanted them Bizarre, he was also really late Yeah, it was like an hour and a half late Yeah. Um, and just before the show we had problems with these visa issues and stuff as well not understanding whether he was actually allowed to come and perform and stuff like that it's very weird all the fun parts of your job hey all the fun parts yes sorry sidetracked let's, 
let's get um let's get into the detail of that in a little bit but so you know music clearly has been a huge part of your life and uh what's influenced you growing up but if you throw back to being like eight nine ten years old what did you want to be then i mean so i i guess like every eight nine year old boy i wanted to be like some sort of superhero um so be it I think the original career plan when I was about four was to be a fire engine. Um, but then um, I remember I was, I started playing piano when I was five, uh, when I was five years old. So I got an inkling that I maybe wanted to do something around that or be a footballer or the other one. Weirdly, I wanted to be a, a marine biologist. Um, love, love scuba diving and love, the idea of sort of the deep sea and all that still stayed with me. I love David Attenborough and all that, all that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, like, like any eight year old, I think my mind changed every other, every other minute as to what that was going to look like. I never thought I'd be doing gig. I didn't know what a gig was when I was eight. I don't think, I think I knew what the school nativity was and, and that kind of thing, but that was, that was about it. I just knew that I liked playing music I think the first moment where I realised I actually wanted to do something around like rock and roll music and that side of things was when I was 11 or 12, I got um, Queen's Greatest Hits on CD for Christmas. And it's still like up there as the best, one of the best Christmas presents I've ever had, like a, a £10 CD. Uh, the one with the, uh, I think every household has it. The black out, the black cover with Queen written in red across it, and then a very eighties picture of the four of them in the middle. Um, I got that. I was like, okay, yeah, this is this is good music. I like this. It'd be quite nice to hear that really, really loud somewhere with a lot of other people. Um, so from there, I got an idea that I wanted to go see gigs and that kind of thing. I guess, but eight years old, I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. <laughs> Fire Engine, I think that's Fire Engine's a good one. Fantastic, a really fantastic one. Uh, my stepsister wanted to be a lamp post. So. Lamp post. Wow, that's because I'm going to tell you why. This is so adorable because they bring light into people's lives. Oh, that is very cute. That's oddly poetic for a child. I know. Yeah, oh. sort of thing she is. Um, like clearly, then, like actually, for compared to many, many, many people, you know, your love of something that impacted you so, so young is something you've been able to drive forwards and be part of your life the, the whole way through, which is, um, which is really amazing. Yeah. We've, we've talked about going, you going to university, but, but for what you do now, do, do you feel that you need um, any specific qualifications? Is there, an other, is there any training that you really need to become a head of operations okay. at, at a huge arena? Oddly, I've... So I think music put me around the right people, which in music, it's a very sort of, it's quite an incestuous industry. Um, but I think weirdly philosophy gave me more of the skills. Um, it helps me be very logical minded. Um, things like you wouldn't think philosophy had helped with writing spreadsheets and stuff like that, but the ability to break a problem down and, focus it into sort of tiny little pieces and every i think there's an advert going around at the moment that says um 
it's about about teaching. I hear it on, heard it on the radio, and it kind of says, "Oh, I was crying in a maths exam, and teacher came up to me and said that it's not one big problem; it's lots of little problems." And that that's kind of what philosophy helped me do. It was a lot of a lot of logic, a lot of reading very dense pieces of text and making them into something that was useful. Um, and then the music side, obviously, I got the base knowledge of my pr technical production side and being a being a technician, being a live sound engineer, and going on to be a production manager for festivals and stuff. A lot of the knowledge I had from my music degree was used in that. Um, but I think more so what it did is it it put me in an environment where people were performing around me, people were going to see shows, and um, and also being on a university campus and having the student union there as a place to sort of cut my teeth doing live shows. I mean, I was technical manager of the student union when I was 20, uh, was I 23, 24, something like that. And that was, as, as a 23, 24-year-old, being responsible for a 5,500 capacity festival like Slamdunk Festival or Damnation Festival that we had there live at Leeds, and working with artists like, um, well, loads of them. I did, I did shows for the 1975. I did shows for Ed Sheeran. Um, yeah, it, doing that at that age, that's what a student union gives you. They, Steve, my manager there, put me in that position and trusted me to be able to deliver it and was there to help me when I couldn't. And I think that was, that was the real key thing, was, was the union as opposed to necessarily the course content. I, I often think, I think particularly for people like you and I who did maybe more humanities or creative topics at university. Artifarty. Um, Artifarty, but it is, it's the, it's the opportunity that is, a, is afforded to you at university and kind of a space for safe risk taking. So theoretically handing over slam dunk to a 23 year old is is risk taking, but it's in it's in a safe environment, and I think the same with many many other parts of the university. You know, like doing a placement year, you know, is is a huge massive multinational going to employ a twenty year old to do finance most of the time? No, but as part of a uh, as part of a placement year, it becomes really safe, and I guess the same for you know being in that environment in a, with with a big safety net and loads of support but also like really, really bright people like you, it's a really, oh, it just, it's you. so conducive to, to being able to do great things probably sooner than you would otherwise. Yeah, I think as, as, a, as a result of, um, of getting the role at, at Leeds Uni, I then was, um, we ran a kind of hires business and hired technical equipment out to other nightclubs and that kind of thing. And as a result of that and those relationships, I then ended up working, um, so Hideout Festival in Croatia, I was production manager for for three years. Um, a few other festivals, I went and worked at Download Festival, um, various others, again, as a, as a result of being given those opportunities at a young age, I was then in a position when I was 24, 25 years old to go on and do those. I mean, had... Had that not happened, would I have been 30 years old and head of operations at a 
at a brand new arena? No, I wouldn't. I'd have been doing, I don't know what I'd have been doing, but probably teaching was what I was originally going to do. Um, I actually got approved on a, I got accepted on a um, PGCE course and then uh, decided last minute not to do it and to kind of pursue this instead. That that snap decision then, this this is a big curveball. What was that snap decision <laughs> that made you think no, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with this? So it's, it's it's twofold. I think. Um, so does it? Part one of the decision was um, my girlfriend at the time didn't want to live with me in Nottingham where she lived, um, despite the fact that I was going to university in Nottingham to be near her and to do that. So that was just a bit of a weird personal thing. But um, on the other side, I went and did a couple of um, a couple of days in my old school and in my old college, uh, post being accepted on the PGCE, but pre going to kind of see what it's like. And this was me fresh out of university. I'm an August baby, so I was just twenty one. Um, yeah. And I went to the college and did. A couple, I think, sociology and philosophy classes, and they were great. Loved them, like loved the sixth form environment. Loved the um, fact that the people there wanted to learn and that they were there of their own volition. I think people don't necessarily, certainly back then, when it wasn't a compulsory thing to go to sixth form or to continue your education beyond sixteen, um, which is showing our age a little bit, but. Um, because you didn't have to, everybody there, for the most part, wanted to be studying sociology or wanted to be studying music or philosophy at, at college, at a good college. Um, and yeah, and then I went into the school and did a year nine music class. And it was just utter chaos. Like, it, it was a sort of hormonal mixing pot of 14-year-old boys and girls doing their last compulsory year of music before GCSE choices. So to them, it was the ultimate kind of DOS class, I guess. Um, and I was there thinking, watching the teacher struggle. And he was, he was my teacher and he wasn't a very good teacher. Um, I don't know if you're listening to this, Mr. Elliot, I'm sorry. But um, yeah, solidarity. But um, but I was 21 and these kids were six years younger than me. I was just like, could I come into this classroom and command any sort of respect or authority in a year's time, having got my shiny PGC certificate? No, I couldn't. I, I wouldn't feel writing myself coming out fresh out of university fresh out of learning about Nietzsche and um like Hume on the philosophy side and talking about sort of late 21st century Helmut Lachman compositions and going in and saying right then kids can you write me x or y I just I wouldn't have been able to do it so after a small sort of crisis of confidence i um i emailed nottingham and cancelled my uh cancelled my place and uh decided to do a master's at leeds uni instead um which i only got halfway through before um dropping out of that 
because I'd because uh, I've got a job doing um, doing technical stuff. Amazing. Right. So kind of serendipitous. Yeah, kind of. I think. Yeah, I landed in the right places. I guess is, I guess is the way of putting it. I by choosing to do the masters, which was in what was it, music technology and computer music. It was again the right environment to keep myself around. It meant I could stay working at the union and um, and apply for the job as a technician, which I got in the. I think I got that job in the September when I started my master's. So it was literally from August and dropping out of the PGCE. It was a month before I was working in live music. Um, then, yeah, that that kind of worked. And again, it was it was about the union being there and putting that faith in me to, at first, go from behind the bar to behind the sound desk. Mm. Amazing. So what... Being behind the sound desk and obviously now being behind a wooden desk, a yeah. normal desk and, and at home. What does a normal, I, I think it's also worth saying, you know, we are recording this in the middle of a global pandemic. We are as a whole country in the UK locked down at the moment. So the question is about to be, what does a normal day or week look like for you? But maybe we'll have to answer that in two ways. So pre-COVID, what does a normal day or week look like for you? And then let's also talk about what, what that, what life looks like now. So, I guess pre pre COVID, if we can remember back that long, um, my my normal day. That what I love about my job is there isn't really one. So um, we have a calendar of around about 150 200 events a year uh, in the venue, and they are everything from, as I said earlier, conferences and trade shows to we have live stand up comedians, we have private dinners all the way up to your big sort of headline act rock and roll shows and most of the time my my job is um as head of operations i'm responsible for four departments of the of the venue so there's the event the people who kind of run the shows um so they deal with the artists they deal with the production liaise with them figure out who's bringing what what time the show starts um, book any staff that are needed, write risk assessments, that kind of thing. Um, there's the facilities team who are, there's an electrician and a building services engineer, and they make sure the building works and doesn't fall down and also make sure that the electricity for the show is safe and all that kind of thing. Um, there's a security team who does what it says on the tin. They look after the security of the building. Uh, and then there's a technical team who do what I used to do, uh, which is look after the technical side of shows, uh, be that a lot of the time these shows bring 11 trucks worth of equipment and all their own staff, and we literally just load it into the venue, they build it, and they take it down, and we essentially plug them into the wall and leave them to it. But on some of the smaller shows, we actually end up doing more for them technical-wise. A lot of the comedians won't bring won't bring a sound engineer or anything like that because what's the point? There's a guy coming in, a, coming on a train um, and dealing with it. Um, so my job was to be responsible for that entire kind of sphere of the building, um, everything apart from buying drinks, basically. Um, so those days would be varied in terms of 
some days my focus would be on some departments, some days on others. Uh, and then on show days, invariably, I'd either be the duty manager in charge of the entire show and sort of the legally responsible person for the safety and welfare of everything, um, or the uh, what we call the EOD, which is um, the executive on duty, who is there above the duty manager to offer kind of advice or to deal with anything like if the police need to be called or deal with press anything that would distract from the normal operation of a show that you don't want the duty manager getting tied up in um so if there if there's an incident that involves a fight and the police turn up for it you don't want the duty manager to have to wait with the people who've been fighting the executive goes and deals with the police and the duty manager can get back to making sure everyone else is safe rather than the two idiots who've been fighting is that is that quite a common yeah case? yeah unfortunately i've um I remember when uh, uh, Noel Gallagher played um, and as he was uh, singing Don't Look Back in Anger, uh, which I really wanted to just stand in the auditorium and watch. Uh, some people were just getting kicked out for having a fight, so I had to leave and go and deal with that. I was just like, you're the worst people for two reasons. <laughs> One, you've been to a gig. One, you've gone to a gig and had a fight, which is just stupid. Like, why would you risk your ticket why would you have a fight anyway um point two you've made me miss <laughs> watching Noel Gallagher um but yeah and then since um a bastard's good we are allowed to swear excellent I've been trying I've oh, been yeah. trying to avoid it um <laughs> post covid um I was put on furlough uh the venue has had no event since the 13th of March which was Anton de Beck from Strictly doing a dance show. Uh, Amazing. What a fantastic way to finish. Oh, God. Um, (laughs) Yeah. um, So I was furloughed on the 1st of April. I've been back a couple of days doing various bits of admin work and just little things that I can't particularly talk about. Um, But, um, yeah, just we're just kind of hoping that things will, will get back to normal at some point soon and um when it does when it does and when we can start running shows again the diary is so full because everything is rescheduled it will be a busy busy time for you when we can get back to it i have to say on a very personal level i cannot wait i'm chomping at the bit to see some live music to go to theater to get to a museum i just desperately miss Fun I've got stuff. a very nice bottle of wine reserved for the uh, the day we get the call. <laughs> um, yeah, I should do that as well. What a great yeah. idea. Freedom. Freedom wine. Freedom. So it's a really, really big change for you. Um, having such, you know, you've described a job that has a huge um, re- requirement on you and a lot of responsibility. And obviously the way life is at the moment has, has taken that on away but i guess it will you know it will all come back um what do you think is most important skill wise to be successful in what in what you do um i i think there's there's sort of three key pillars for it um the main one without a doubt is is communication um so it's the ability to listen to managing a team of eight full-time staff but in addition to that i manage a team of 100 casual staff as well who all report to me as their kind of main manager. 
they they answer to the event managers on an event day, but I am the event manager's manager, and therefore they come under my umbrella of that kind of thing. You can't deal with a team that big without being able to listen and communicate sort of concisely and succinctly what you need from people. Um, so that'd be that'd certainly be the main the main skill would be communication and listening. Um, organization. Uh, I'm I'm very guilty of having the most unorganized email inbox um, in the world. It's just sixteen thousand emails, not in folders or anything like that. It's gives my wife palpitations. But the key thing is, is that I understand how it's how to manage it, and in terms of the documents and procedures and processes that we follow, they are all organized um easy to understand and easy to reference so that should there ever be an incident should there be a question of why we've done something we can always look back and understand why uh and then the third the third skill is um i guess i guess you call it humility almost it's the ability to learn from your own mistakes um i think we've all worked for managers or worked for well all been in classes with teachers who have not listened to their not learned from their own mistakes and not understood when they've done something wrong and i would far rather tell a member of staff that i'd done something wrong and here's how i'm fixing it than deny it completely and have them lose that respect uh, or, or or the same thing yeah, again yeah exactly um yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, understanding and learning from mistakes or changes um, in, in how things work is, is definitely, yeah, top three. I have to say, I think those are skills for life as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, 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 yeah, knowledge. yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think you're doing life and work and marriage. Yeah, well, it's going okay. From, Amazing. So loads of skills there that are really important. So listening and communicating, learning from from your mistakes and organisation, whatever that looks like for you, I have to say I share uh, the very full inbox, but I firmly believe if you know how to use the search function in Outlook, then you're going to be absolutely fine. So those are three things that are most important for you. What do you wish more people in your sector and your profession knew or could do? You know, what, what do you feel is missing from from your sector at the missing from my sector in particular um i think that one of the one of the key issues with working in events and one of the sort of it it, it comes with the territory to a degree is that everyone works in certainly when you get to large scale touring a lot of people work in different time zones a lot of people work in different like working patterns and shift patterns and so on people do need and i think that this is going to come out of the post-pandemic working world people need to be able to switch off um you get so much um so much burnout in the event industry um it's a world which is which can be 24 hours um there was a stage when um, 
I was living in Leeds with Rach, uh, my, my missus, and I was technical manager at the venue. And I got a phone call at three in the morning from an artist who didn't want to park their tour bus on a slope uh, because the blood would go to their head when they were laid in their bed. Um, so did I know anywhere else they could park their tour bus? Uh, and this was 3 a.m. before a 7 a.m. call for the lead summer ball. Um, I remember the artist's name, but I, I'm not going <laughs> to not going to shame them uh, with the call. I now because I now work with the tour manager fairly regularly, and he apologises for this phone call on an almost daily basis. But um, but um, quite a lot of people, because it's such a desirable industry, and because it's a job that is a dream job for an awful lot of people, going seeing gigs, working in live music. Um, a lot of people do push themselves too far and there's an expectation, certainly when you're starting in the industry, to push yourself beyond what are acceptable norms, I guess, and an expectation to work for free when you start and an expectation to kind of, um, yeah, just just completely risk destroying yourself for what is still just a job and I think Mm. if people understood their work-life balance perhaps a little bit more and understood how they feel when they're not exhausted which hopefully they will be now then they might look at that when we come back and when we're running shows again and see that it doesn't have to be that way there's going to be 18 hour days there like obviously it's you know and there's going to be days where you do an 18 hour day then you sleep on a bus for six hours and then you do another 18 hour day and that is going to happen but working as hard as you can to minimize those days and minimize working tired for everyone's welfare i think is something that certainly managers in the industry need to understand because people will throw themselves into the job and people, if you ask, if I opened up my inbox now, I could email any one of a number of students who've sent me a CV and say, can you come in for a 20 hour shift tomorrow? And they wouldn't bat an eyelid. And that's not a good thing. And managers certainly from the top down, understanding that people have lives and need looking after is, is yeah, that's what I'd choose. That's a bit rambly, but no, I, I I think it's also it is really important. It's part of our it's part of the zeitgeist. It's part of the moment to care for ourselves and look after ourselves. And certainly this year, what you know, whether you whether you're somebody that's been followed for the year or been working, like it's just been a very very tiring year. And I think put put a lot of what's important into perspective, um, for sure. And you know, thinking about that, you know, twenty twenty year old kid who would turn up and do twenty hours, twenty four hours. That is that is a passion and enthusiasm that can be channeled into something exceptional that doesn't have to be just yeah. backbreaking, <laughs> backbreaking, backbreaking work. Yeah, exactly. Um, for sure, that's such a, it's such an a lovely and interesting um, point. Not only as a focus for you, but also you know thinking and hoping that that will be something that that comes out of um, this yeah. insane year. Yeah, definitely. Sure. Speaking of 
crazy work hours what is you know it, again thinking about a, a normal time and a time that we all look forward to moving back to um what's your life like outside of work and what's your work-life balance as um so it goes through fits and starts um when i when i got off of the job of head of operations at the arena i was coming from um a smaller venue which was a theater in scunthorpe called Glass hall uh, where i was technical manager and that was sort of i'd got that venue to a stage where it, it sounds lazy but it kind of ran itself um i put it was a small venue i put policies and procedures and the right staff in the right places and then i let it run and tinkered with it every now and then like a like a good car um and going into Hull I was recruited so the interview was it was a really long interview process I was in applied in January interviewed in February and then interviewed again in March uh eventually told I got the job at the end of March and started at the end of April uh now our first test event was at the start of June uh and that was when I went into the, when I started at the end of April, I was working for a porter cabin in the car park because they were still building the place. Um, so my work-life balance at that point, when I had to get everything together, those first six months maybe, um, we didn't have many staff in, so I was working as half of my team plus myself and everything, and that was a horrible time. So it was it was a great experience to to open a new venue but um it was also like we, we moved house to live in Hull and I just went and I came home slept got up went to work came home slept got up, went to work and thankfully um my um my wife Rachel was on um on sort of gardening leave for quite a long period having left her previous job and that meant that she was at home to just deal with life's admin yeah uh and look after me um it's got to the point now where yes there's a lot of nights and yes those 3am phone calls from the states or tour managers or whatever still do happen um but i think i've gotten better at, at managing it myself uh and been able to set stupid things like setting do not disturb on for the night so that my phone will only actually ring and wake me up if someone rings me twice within five minutes, which is like, oh, the building's on fire or something like that. Like uh, text messages or email pinging won't wake me up. Um, setting my email not to auto sync was a big thing as well. So the only way I can check my email is to actively refresh the email rather than it just pinging up and showing up. And that brought me back. I've got a, a usage tracker on my phone that says how many hours of screen time I've had a day. And that really does, you do that for a week and I guarantee you'll change all these things on your phone because you spend so much time um, digitally at work, even though you're not there. Yeah, it's like the, it's the mental thing at work, you know, being mentally aware. Yeah, it's the mental load. Being there. Yeah, absolutely. I turned off all of my notifications on my phone about a year ago. So I just have phone calls coming through and weirdly text messages. I just haven't turned it off, but yeah. who texts anymore? Nobody. But everything else switched off. And it really is. 
such a mental yeah. weight lifted. Big time. Uh, top tip, I think, right here, top tip, turn off your work notifications. Yeah, turn a, certainly off your work email account. Just, yes. yeah. Unless it's a really busy time, which is... <laughs> So uh, when we're in show mode, my phone's in full, Obviously, shouting at me every time anything happens. But yes. um, certainly when I'm at home, it's Absolutely. it's off. Yeah. Yes, for sure. So I think I think it sounds like you found a way to have a pretty yeah. good one. Yeah, I mean, months. having a, I've got a, as you know, I've got a one and a half month old, one and a half month old, one and a half year old baby, um, who certainly make sure that I'm paying attention to her rather than work most of the time. Because um, if I don't pay attention to her, she'll be climbing up a bookcase or something. Um, and she's very cute. So She is she's lively, but cute. <laughs> um, so I think like I've got a couple of quite big yeah. questions. Um, so what is the biggest mistake that you think you might have made along the um, way? Do you mean career-wise or just in general? <laughs> so, I, I, interpret it yeah. in whatever way. In whatever, I mean, you know, whatever way you want. I think that um, that kind of go, going back to that throwing yourself in and doing 20, 24 hour days um, thing. When I first when I first started as a as a technician that first the first year i worked um doing live sound and live lighting i was so eager to impress and so keen that i um basically just sort of almost it's very dramatic to say ruined every relationship i had but i was at work all the time and i really threw myself into it and i really enjoyed my work but um, I had a girlfriend who hated me as a result of it because I just was never there. I had housemates and flatmates who I never saw. I missed social occasions. I missed birthdays. It affected my sleep. It affected my mood. Um, and yeah, I think looking back on it, I don't know if being that person got me to where I am. So it's difficult to call it a mistake. But there has to be a better way of doing it mm. than I did it. Um, and ironically, um, what what kind of made me came immediately after that, which was getting an opportunity. I wasn't very good as a technician that first year. I was awful. Um, and I could do like club nights and stuff like that. But doing live sound at a gig, could never get my head around it properly for that first year. Um, I was sort of relegated to being the box pusher on shifts and that kind of thing. Um, and I got an opportunity to work in Edinburgh at the Fringe for uh, a season, a venue called the Gilded Balloon. And there I went I went in, I didn't know anybody there, and they just went, right, here is your 90-seater theatre for the month. Here are the 12 shows you'll be doing every day for £300 a week. <laughs> Uh, by the way, you've got to pay your rent and stuff out of there, so you're not going to have any money. Um, and it was almost like it was almost like boot camp. Um, I had to get around looking after myself in that time because otherwise, like a week in, people were dropping like flies. 
Um, but I was able to go in and mm. kind of understand what I needed to do and what I could leave to just happen organically. Um, and also learned a lot of skills very quickly. Um, one, one of the things that I'm quite good at now that I possibly wasn't good at back then is sort of been a bit of a knowledge sponge for things like that and picking picking up at least the key elements of something quickly which again comes from that philosophy degree and that way of thinking um so yeah from the from the biggest mistake that kind of that kind of bond came with that and then I remember having a conversation with my boss in Leeds when I came back um I did a did a couple of shows and all of a sudden I found myself being put on stage manager of the refectory stage for, um, which was our biggest, this like 2,100 capacity venue um, for the, um, the Freshers Ball, I think it was, or something like that. It was five, it was five from, um, of five fame and Professor Amazing. Green. Um, yeah. Um <laughs> And I spoke to him afterwards, um, like a few years afterwards, when we were having a few drinks, and he was like, yeah, I remember that. I remember you coming back from Edinburgh and going, shit, Sam got good. What happened? So, yeah, biggest mistake, throwing myself in too hard, but I can't necessarily call it a mistake because I don't know if that's why I ended up where I am or not. I feel like nothing's really a mistake. I think it's it's, uh, sometimes... Yeah, I, I agree. And I think there's like, I was having this conversation today with um, our CEO about the difference between like a mistake and a regret. You Something can be a mistake in that like, probably it's not the best way of going about it, but you don't necessarily regret it if you've ended yeah. up where you wanted to be. And I, I, don't, I think of myself as having lots of those, okay. lots of those moments as well. Um, as you were talking as well, I was reflecting on, you know, the throwing, I mean, Edinburgh what a baptism of fire for anyone that wants to do anything to do with events or comedy or I mean it's also the best thing in the whole world not everyone should go to it um but it's that I think there's also that thing about like about practice and repetition and that if you you know like you've said a sponge for information like trying to do the same thing again and again and again and again and again you are only going to get better and that's really powerful yeah i think going back to, to mistakes and regrets one one way i've always thought of it is a mistake can only ever be something you do and the regret is something you don't um do. like i don't i i think things are mistakes that i've done but i regret more things that i didn't do um mm-hmm. so yeah so true so true you were talking about being good versus not being good and as somebody that really enjoys live music but understands not a single part of it can you talk a little about the technicality of what made you not good and then the difference being good sometimes you just crap at a job and (laughs) i i think that when i wasn't good it was down to the fact that i didn't I think some of it was that I'd come from a studio world and I was going into a live world and they're complete, although it's the same cables and the same microphones to a degree, it's a completely different thing. There's a different pressure um, and there's a different way of working. Um, And also just 
from from my point of view, the physics of sound and stuff are completely different in the studio to what they are in a live environment. And my lack of confidence led to a lot of issues with when I was mixing, I wasn't mixing things loudly enough. Um, I was, or I was creating feedback and that kind of thing. So there was a very sort of cut and dry, black and white, you are not good at this job at this stage thing. Um, and then when I went to Edinburgh and basically had a sound desk and a lighting desk and 12 shows a day, I could sit there and go, right, okay, so this is what this does. Whereas I was essentially firefighting it, tired, having pushed boxes all night and never really got the opportunity to break it down into why I was bad at it in that first year. Um, and I think that, again, going back to how I'd, how I'd correct it, I think if I had more time to kind of sit and go, like sit in a room with a, a sound desk and the microphone and see what happened if I turned it up or if I applied that EQ to a bass drum, what had happened, then I'd maybe have been better at it. But um, yeah, I think beyond that, from, from where I am now in my career and understanding why people are bad at their jobs, I think the people you, the people you don't hire again are the bad personalities more than anything else. Like by by the time you've got to the level of arenas, you're you're pretty good at your job most of the time. Every now and then there's someone who's not, but they're very few and far between. And it becomes it's such a small world. Um obviously the stereophonics tour once every three years, two years, or whatever. So all of those guys who work for Stereophonics also work for X, Y, and Z other artists. So we have we have tour managers come in like in two consecutive weeks. One week they were just coming to the end of a tour with the Queen Extravaganza tribute show, and the next week they're on um, the League of Gentlemen live tour, and. If you're a knobhead on one of them, you don't know who you're going to meet on the next one. So yeah, they're they're the people who who aren't good at their jobs now. I think was that sort of an answer? Fascinating, and I think so true. Yeah, great answer, and I think so true for so many so many things. And also comes back to you know the three skills that are really important, and that, you know communication being being one of those things. Um, that yeah. communication is the root of great relationships isn't it and that's a huge part of everything we do um amazing i feel like i've learned so much and also learned about what it is to be a technical manager and that you can have an eq yes. for a bass drum yeah alone didn't know yeah, that it has its own it has its own microphone and, for a kick and, drum and so no, you uh, you have a microphone for every single drum you see those mixing desks. If you have a normal band, there's normally about thirty-six to forty channels of audio for that band that you've got to do deal with when you get to that level. Anyway, amazing. So, for anyone that's interested in becoming a technical manager, you need to learn how to mix thirty-six yeah. different. I'll just do what I did and learn to control lights instead. They're easier. They're just computers. <laughs> hey. Amazing um let's finish on a high then so we've talked about mistakes um and and regrets a little but what's the what's been your best day what's you know what's the day that you reflect on as being something that you are 
so um there's one gig that i always for this type of thing um i always bring up and it was when i was at scunthorpe which um i don't know if you've ever been to scunthorpe it's not it's a very downtrodden industrial town sort of in a forgotten corner of the world um and the baths hall there was um a project that it, it it used to be um it used to be a public swimming baths and then they used to cover it over and put dances on there back in sort of the 30s and 40s um and then it got to in the 70s it was a fairly big venue for um like university tour type gigs so the ones that used to play the refectory um big british bands used to go and play every thousand two thousand capacity venue because arenas and the technology to do shows on that scale simply didn't exist in the 70s and 80s apart from your big like woodstocks and that kind of thing um and then um in when i was at college in scunthorpe it got closed down uh although um although not before i managed to play there as the support the bass player in the support band for the cheeky girls uh, which was a thing I did whilst I was at college. Uh, before the so that, hang on, hang on. Being being the basis of the support for the chicken. Whenever you do, you know those um, like weird icebreaker things where they're like, "What's an interesting fact about yourself?" Bang, sorted. There's n- never going to be a better one than that. Um, but yeah, they cl- they closed it down, and then there was you a big win, sort of political that. argument about um, what should happen to it, and eventually um, the Labour Council ran for an election on the basis that they'd rebuild it, they rebuilt it, and now it's a really nice modern facility that opened in 2011. And when I was working there, we got a phone call from um, SJM Promotions, who are the biggest promoter in the country. They do, everyone's been to an SJM show, so they do all the big stadium shows, they do all the big arena shows, but they also have loads of small shows basically they are the market leader and um, they said right we've got an artist that we can't tell you the name of Uh, they'll simply be known as artist f and we want this date in the diary it has to be this day uh, with a day beforehand for them to build it we need a plan for the show to be in the round so stage in the middle uh, and their tour manager will be over in a week to look at the venue to make sure it's okay so this tour manager came from, they flew him over um, from from Ireland, um, especially just to go look at Scunthorpe, to look at this venue for the day. And I showed him around, it's like, who is it, who is this? Like, I can't tell you, I can't tell you. And I built this plan and built this stage and everything. And then about uh, two weeks before the show, they were like, right, okay, so um, we're going on sale next week and it's Arcade Fire. Um, playing in Scunthorpe to a thousand people uh, and honestly that week was just the maddest most insane week of of my life it was crazy and basically um, I slept in the hotel across the road from the venue because um, Arcade Fire's guys arrived at something like seven in the morning the day before the show they'd driven from Lyon in France um, straight from a show to like sort of 20, 30,000 people there. 
they came and they built this um, very small, intricate, intricate five meter by five meter stage, which all eleven of them got on, um, and they performed in Scunthorpe, uh, and no one could quite believe what was happening. It was just very strange. Um, and I remember seeing them just wandering around backstage and um, essentially they used it as they just released um, uh, what's the album with everything now on? I can't remember the name of it, but they just, just released this album. Uh, they played a load of the songs for the first time live, did the show and then went and headlined the Isle of Wight Festival two days later after playing with us. Uh, and we still don't quite know why they did it. Um, but yeah, that was, I remember standing on the, on the kind of, um, balcony at the show, just thinking what the, what the hell just happened? Like after, after those two weeks, and I, I think the next show afterwards was some like Ella Fitzgerald tribute act to about 50 people or something like that. But yeah, if you go, I'd recommend going on YouTube and just searching Arcade Fire Baths Hall. You can't do it justice how weird it was, um, but it was amazing. Like every everybody in that room will have that as their top or top five gigs. Um, we got a double a double page reviewing Q Magazine for the gig. Uh, we were on Drowning Sound. It made TV everything it was just mad so yeah that was a that was a great day what an incredible that sounds still like got the set an amazing day. amazing what a way oh love it what a way to finish with arcade fire in a secret gig yeah. in scunthorpe That's a good of thing. all places amazing and i think like really testament to you know the industry that you're in audio production and uh, no, it's, 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 it, audio, yeah by then like I think at first I was audio production then I was lighting production I think by now I'm just I think show operation event event management event event production event I just I mean firstly clearly so diverse it can take you all over the world and a really yeah diverse yeah fun industry to be in um, so thank you so much for giving no us worries. an insight into this. Is there anything else that you'd want to? I don't think so. I think we're. I think we're good. Amazing. Well, thank you so so much, Sam. Um, I will give it a go in terms of editing and uh, and send it to you. This was another conversation that took place back in February 2021, mid pandemic. As we talked about, work life balance, or rather overworking, has been something of a theme for Sam and the industry in which he works. It's adrenaline-fueled and exhilarating. So to go from the 18-hour days he talked about to not working for weeks and months on end will have taken its toll both on Sam and his many colleagues across the whole entertainment sector. Long-term furlough is certainly taking rebalancing the work-life balance a little too far. However, you might be wondering how Sam has been getting on since then and since lockdown ended. And perhaps unsurprisingly, Sam has been as busy as ever. In a recent two-week period, Sam and his team put on Bullet for My Valentine, Tim Minchin, Rick Astley, a Meatloaf tribute act, The Offspring, and two conferences. A couple of things strike me from this list. Firstly, like, whoa, that is a long list. No wonder Sam works all those long hours. 
And secondly, what incredible variety. For the many of us who perhaps fear monotony in our career, clearly this is a career, a role and a sector that provides excitement at every turn. And perhaps the sector can learn a little from a lockdown and create a little bit more work-life balance for everyone involved. Sam's career, though, and his life, really, which we didn't talk that much about, is a success story of what happens when you follow your passion. Sam's golden thread is his love of music, or rock and roll, as he says. But what makes him really fantastic in his role is knowing what's valuable in life. Great communication, great relationships, and seeking somewhere a good work-life balance. I really do hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Please do like the episode and subscribe. Check us out on Instagram at Destination Unknown Pod. If you'd like to be a guest, I'd absolutely love to hear from you. And if you have career paths that you'd like to hear about, please let me know. Next time, we'll be hearing from another wonderful friend, someone who has taken a relatively traditional career of teaching English and turned it into an exciting, unique and very successful business. Another fascinating journey that I can't wait for you to hear. For now, fellow travellers, thank you for listening and see you down the road.